Welcome back to Reformed Millennials, the podcast where finances, economic trends, and sports intersect. Cam and Joel help listeners better invest their time and money. Also, it's important for listeners to understand that investing in equities, fixed income instruments, and or alternative asset classes involves substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational, and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice, this podcast does not provide individualized investment, tax, or insurance advice, nor is it meant as a recommendation to any listener to buy or sell any specific securities or otherwise take any other form of investment action. This is an excerpt of the full legal disclaimer that's available on the landing page of this podcast, which includes whether Cam Pitchers or Joel Shackleton have any ownership or interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, Joel. Cam. Welcome to downtown, officially. The yes. real downtown. Yes, I've, I've been introduced. Yeah, I've been very excited. For, for our listeners, Joel has just recently moved offices, and he's about 12 paces, if I were to walk outside, to another building. So I'm very excited to have you even closer, because I don't see you enough as it is. And you're now officially going to be in the core and yeah i'm really excited about it i know i'm pretty pumped myself i have a funny story i was walking in with my box as one does into their new office yeah with your plant and your pencil holder and everything yeah and um i'm walking in and i'm with this big tall guy and it looks like i'm being escorted out of the building (laughs) and ben a friend uh looks at me looks at the big guy and he's like what happened and it's more important to know that Ben is also a criminal defense lawyer. And he's like, dude, what, what's going on? Do you need my assistance? I'm like, I'm going into the building. I'm not leaving. <laughs> That's so good. So. The other thing I was going to ask you about is now, obviously, um, heading into new office, new people around you. I'm assuming you're going to get asked to go into a NFL fantasy league within seconds of arriving. Because now that is where the main focus goes. I was just thinking how much we are in the dog days of sports. Mm-hmm. And everything kind of goes on hiatus. The The off-season stuff, I, we, I know we've chatted previously about how do these sports franchises model themselves after the NFL where they're constantly at the top of the discussion. They cannot do August, I'm sorry. Just, it doesn't feel like anything ever happens in August with the, the winter sports, quote-unquote, like the NHL and the NBA. They kind of go on complete hiatus in August, and now everyone's focus shifts outside of anyone who's a baseball fan, which maybe we'll talk about. We did, you and I were chatting offline about maybe we need to look into how well the MLB has been doing this year mm-hmm. with their new changes, but I don't know. Probably wait till the end of the regular season to see what, what the real data says. But outside of that, now everyone's talking about the NFL. It's starting to ramp up with preseason. You got all this. Every sports headline out of the U.S. is about some kind of camp talk. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me, I just completely buy into it. I just read every headline. I can't wait to know which sleepers I should be picking up on my fantasy team. That's the real August mandate from now on is figuring that stuff out. So I've been more reading about your favorite player. And I've, I'm, here's, here's the thing about me in fantasy. I just do what the computer tells me to do. Mm-hmm. Analytic guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I hire a service. It picks my team for me. I mean, I wish I did that with my actual favorite team. But unfortunately, I, that was inherited. However, I've been much more interested in how arrogant the Jets are already. Oh, it's having, perfect. Isn't it, isn't it amazing how, you, how a franchise can adopt a player's personality? <laughs> If anyone can do it, it's a New, a New York franchise, though. Um, the Jets think that they're going to win the Super Bowl this year. And they will. And I've been looking for tickets for the New York Jets in November already when they come to the West Coast because I need to see my boy. <laughs> Anyways, we I digress. The, there's the dog days of sports right now. It's not necessarily the dog days of the market. So No, it's been update? hot. Quite frankly, this year has been quite the relief given that last year was so challenging. 
if we had two of those back to back, I don't know. I might have been, I might have been, I don't know, maybe getting into teaching people how to play golf. I don't mm. know what I was going to do. <laughs> um, not actually, but it has been a very good year, especially for tech stocks. Now, July brought a different flavor. And it was this, the story of, of um, breadth widening. So you saw participation from the rest of the market. So what does that mean? We, for the first six months, talked about big, the big six. And I had talked to you or even on this podcast, I was saying that we, what we need to see is we need, in order for this bull run to continue, we need to see broader participation from the rest of the market. And we got that in July in like quite significantly. The rest of the world started to participate. Uh, more specifically, emerging markets, actually. It's been lagging quite badly. And um, this past month, it's done quite well. Tencent was up, I don't know, 11 12% in July. And the rest of the world is taking, um, taking part in this, and with the exception of Europe. Now, um, what, what am I talking about here? Well, if you start to look at oil, oil is now back above 80 bucks. You start to look at... Um, well, at least in my opinion, it's important to look at the BRICS. So you look at Brazil, you look at... Um, China, but more specifically the, the the surrounding Asian markets, so Japan, Korea, all of those um, countries are starting to participate, and that is a very good thing. And this is very good, especially for value stocks. When you when you pull out the big seven, the big eight, you end up having a pretty underpriced S and P five hundred. And when you look at Canada more specifically, it's also quite underpriced relative to those names, and that's a good thing. It it means that there's opportunity. Now the last couple days, we're starting to see um, other companies report earnings. Um, the big tech companies, yesterday, Amazon went out. You had earlier on the week, earlier in the week, you had Meta and you had Google and you had Microsoft. All of them. I mean, Microsoft is a little bit mixed. Um, Amazon last night showed that they are still by and away the larger, the, the biggest cloud provider. Uh, Meta had a phenomenal quarter again. And what we're starting to see is other other companies come in with mixed but stronger than expected and that has been the story of the year it's last year we were pricing in a major recession 500 basis points in 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 rate increases was going to cause the consumer to die and none of that has actually transpired now will that be the story of the back half of this year i i, I can't say one way or the other I do think, and I'm going to point a few people or listeners to uh, our newsletter again, because I'm going to post some really interesting mixed opinions on where this back half of this year is going to go. And I don't want to make this decision for anybody, but I'm, I'm, in, in, I'm in no camp yet, personally. I want to see how this plays out, but especially more specific to Canada. But I want to see where the consumer goes. I want to see how the the um, incoming increase in, in spend on, on paying back student debt in the United States impacts mm. the consumer. I want to see how these rate h- hikes actually impact the, the Canadian consumer with regards to how variable rate mortgages impact the people that haven't been able to lock in a fixed rate, people that are trying to buy new homes. <coughs> Refinance, I, yep. It, it's, it's starting to, we're starting to see the impacts of rate increases hit specific groups. Yeah, and, and on a more macro level rather than just like day-to-day wallet spend exactly. issues. Yeah. So I wanna, I wanna get a better handle on that. And I think over the, the coming um, podcast, I'll be talking about it more and I'll be posting more about it. Just me and what I'm consuming and, and where I see as being important places to focus. So moving on. What's our next topic here, Ken? Well, I was going to ask you whether or not, I know you did a bit of a deep dive just between you and I anyways on the meta call and, and some of the, the information from either Zuck or other executives. And I was just wondering if one thing stood out to you specifically from from the sentiment from that call, not necessarily the earnings and the um, their financial performance per se, but if that is what, what stuck out to you, then I guess talk about that. But if there was one thing in, 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 on the call, on the, on the earnings narrative that was given, I think I guess it would have been last week, that really stuck out to you. Well, I think what, and this is more sadly political, I think, or I should say this points more to where I believe the biggest change in our cult- cultural fabric is now 
we're starting to notice it. And this also plays into what I think should be another topic for today. It's just the the Canadian banning of, of, of media on social media platforms. But what I'm noticing is, is that their, their ability to um, pivot our addiction to short form video content, the, the fact that Reels is now a $10 billion run rate. Think about that. Which is bang on with TikTok from my understanding. It's bigger than TikTok. Yeah. So Reels is now generating more revenue than TikTok does. So for those that said that TikTok was going to kill Facebook, that is insane. So, well, and just the agility, I mean, we talk about the reaction times with all of these kind of these news items and, and, and trends and whatnot. And I think it's more than evident now just how agile even some of these massive companies can be in terms of getting what they need from an infrastructure standpoint to, I guess, compete with these emerging talents, these emerging companies like TikTok. Like, not that TikTok is dead. Like, not where, no, no, no. Uh, it's just that the means. fact that it's like, okay, well, this is working. And I think you've made the comment about how Zuckerberg is kind of the master of of the uh, control C, control V, and make <laughs> yeah. it better. Yeah. And, and add in his own spin on things, obviously, with a lot of talented people around him. So I think that's just another example of saying, okay, well, this is a trend. This is something we have to, we already have the user base. We need to retain those users and we need to do it fast. And I mean, fast and, in, in my head, fast with a company of this size is within the time frame that they've been able to do this, which I call it 12 to 18 months and just in terms of shifting and putting money where they need yeah. to. And while, while still continuing their, their progression and their, I guess, maybe not mandate, but just the, the keeping up with the Joneses in terms of their AI play. And I, I'm assuming they're still obviously in, investing in, in VR and, and whatnot as well. well of course. So. And you know what? That hasn't changed. But luckily for them, they've been able to, there's been other important tech players who have sucked some of the focus away from yeah. Zuck, but also his his year of efficiency has been um, something that's been well received in the in the investment market well, by investors in the market. So I think he's benefited a lot from from those things. However, it does speak to a lot of things be around the idea of aggregators, the fact that they have three billion plus monthly active users. Mm-hmm. They just have this they're ingrained into our 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 lifestyle our our social fabric they are able to control c control v Mm. almost all products and add it into their their product offering and what i'm also noticing at least um personally is there that apple has made their att transition facebook has clearly had the scale and the willingness to kind of impair its business for a minute, fix it, iterate, and then figure out a way in which they can then deliver high quality advertising to its its user base while it it's still consumable and doesn't um, irritate us. Mm-hmm. And the other social media platforms haven't been able to do it as well. So this is what I think is a really important moving forward. And right now we have a writer strike, we have a an, an Hollywood strike per se, and you have what's also happening in Canada where we're banning the delivery of, of news on social media platforms. Yeah. I just picked up a quick article from yesterday from CTV. Um, so I mean, pretty high level, but basically says discovering news articles and videos on Facebook and Instagram will soon become a relic of the past as Meta announced its official ending news availability in Canada. So Meta said Tuesday, two days ago, that within a few weeks, it will remove news from all Canadian users of its popular Facebook and Instagram platforms. In June, the company started running a test that limited news for up to 5% of users, but now it's just moving out of the testing phase. Quote, in order to provide clarity to the millions of Canadians and businesses who use our platforms, we are announcing today that we have begun the process of ending news availability permanently in Canada. So that's from Rachel Curran, the head of public policy for Meta Canada. So that is, I think I had commented last week or week before when we, I think it was last week, we started talking about this and said that by the end of 23 that we'd be seeing it. Obviously, from Meta's perspective anyways, they've, they've said, okay, we're, we're ready to go to, <laughs> to get out of this, yeah. which I know you have your own comments here. And again, I think I would just continue the sentiment that I shared, I think you shared last week in relation to this, the fact that we are 
quote unquote at war with the I think our information sure yeah it, it's just that it's a very taking a very very hard line on this as it's currently written and how it's currently being being rolled out and I don't think that's the way of doing it do I am I completely against some regulation on this side of things no because I, I have seen firsthand in my life the power of what we always say disinformation mm-hmm. and and how so I think there's need to be regulation around it I think there is but it needs to be done in a different way because how it's obviously being done right now is all or nothing in terms yeah. of the news I think it's also cycle. being sold as being a disinformation 100% um, policy yeah. and it's not that's yeah not no that's 100% is. how it's being yeah. in your face so I got a quote from Ben Thompson's trajectory. He yesterday posted something about all of this. And um, this is as a comment to that and quote, here's the thing with corporate communication. So as a response to that, obviously whatever particular company spokesperson says is self-serving, which is obvious. However, that doesn't mean that it isn't true. And that applies to that Quran quote. Of course, it's true that publishers benefit from being able to put their links on meta platforms to a dramatically larger extent than meta benefits from them being there. It's a pretty tiny, and this is me speaking here, um, the revenue generated from those companies being on meta platforms isn't even close to the traffic benefits that they receive. So effectively what they're doing here with this new policy is meta now has to pay, let's use um, CBC as Mm. an example here. CBC posts on meta platforms, so on Facebook or on Instagram. And then Instagram has to pay them because they posted on their platform for being there. I don't quite understand why if you were to, I can't think of anybody who was invited for free, or not even invited, they came onto my my property for free, and then they start using it, and then I have to pay them for being there. That's effectively what's happening here. And sadly, what's, ha- what, what's the reality is that what us content creators or news publications have done is they've cannibalized their business because big tech has provided this um, poison pill, effectively, mm-hmm. which is you need us now because we have become the de facto place to go to, to, um, to consume content. Yeah. And now they control everything. It has, what it's done to newspapers is what they're currently doing to Hollywood. And it's just a sad reality of the times. The technology itself, the big aggregators, or where everybody is. And you need to distribute there. And right now, our government has decided that um, in order to fund these government organ- or these um, newspapers, big tech, it's got to come from big tech. And the way in which they're doing that is wrong, in my opinion. And I think Ben Thompson does a really great job in his article in, in stating that the way in which they want to extract their pound of flesh from big tech mm-hmm. should be by, by way of taxes, not by way of the economics um, being redistributed somehow, because it just makes absolutely no sense. What Meta is going to do is just block them, and then they're going to be, this is going to cost them everything. Mm-hmm. And that's a poor way to approach this. Yeah, I take opinion. it as a cost of doing business rather than a than asking them to change their business. Exactly. So be like, okay, you know what? You want to function in Canada. This happened in Australia. And um, by, I think, I'm guessing here, our politicians have seen what happened in, in, with Rupert Murdoch and News Corp in Australia, the way in which it was built, and, or rather the, the policy built and then enacted. I think that we're trying to copy that, but it's actually gotten significantly... We've, we've stepped it up a notch mm-hmm. in Canada. So... This is a long way or long-winded way of me saying that I think that if, and I'm in agreement with you, I think there needs to be, I'm of the opinion that news in Canada is incredibly important. It should be a right in the same way that we are, we have a right of of postage. We have a right, we have a number of rights in Canada. I do believe that um, our news organizations and journalists need to be protected in the same way that I think comedians should be protected from, from being canceled. I think that our news publications need to be protected. The way in which they're funded, I have less of a problem with um, that than perhaps some other people, especially more conservative people, might mm-hmm. um, approach this. I do believe, well, I don't love that the government is handing out and, and picking winners here. I do think that the business model is impaired. It doesn't work anymore. 
um, the old way anyways. Yeah. And unless you're going the subscriber route, which Canada doesn't quite have the population, it doesn't have the interest, the reason why it works in the United States is because someone from Europe will buy a New York Times um, subscription. Someone from Canada will. No one's buying CBC subs yep. in Europe. So, again, I think that what we should do is, is have a tax on these big tech companies in Canada. We should not be restricting news from people because this is how we do it. Mm-hmm. And if they take Google search and if they take meta platforms away from us in terms of how we access news, I don't know where we're going to get it. Email? Because Google also owns that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Twitter. I think, yeah, like the the commentary earlier about Meta's ability to transition, adapt, be agile with the changing landscape within their different business segments. This is the polar opposite in saying, you know, the old adage, adapt or die. These companies, these these huge publications and, 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 and news outlets have not been able to do that in an agile way. I think I think some in Canada have been better than others without pumping any specific tires, but I think some have, have really developed a, a good online platform and a digital presence where you can still see their stuff. But to your point, the reach is not to the same degree. We have, you know, 30-odd million people here. The the interest in Canadian politics, business, real estate, etc., is very niche from the world perspective, as you put it. And they definitely are fighting an uphill battle. And with these tech giants, as you put it, providing people with a lower barrier to entry in terms of producing the content and getting it on to a platform where someone can see it, I think is a good thing. And then I guess the end of my point here is just that this is very typical of government policy in general. And I think for sure for Canadian government, it's to kind of overreach and then, and then claw back. And that's where I obviously see this going. I don't mm-hmm. think that very many constituents will be very happy, even on both sides of the aisle, mm-hmm. for that matter. I think I think as many people click on news articles on Facebook or Instagram, on the left and the right are probably very similar. So I think there's going to be some, obviously, some public backlash with this, and they're going to take in the information in terms of what public wants to see, as well as how much does this affect our our businesses and our economy in Canada. And then mm-hmm. we'll re- revamp things and kind of pull things back and, and pull. It's a working papers. document, is what you're it's saying. A wor- it seems to always be a working document. Yes. So I, I'm on. It's not the best in the world that we have to kind of start here, and that obviously the even the timeline. I, I feel like based off of other rhetoric that I had read over the past couple of months has been sped up. Like the fact that Meta has said essentially over the next couple of weeks, like we're talking here on August 3rd, that before the end of August, all this is going to be pulled. I think that's a little bit earlier than maybe some people thought. And it is going to be, I think it's, yeah, it's going to be quick and swift with the backlash. So, yeah, it's never a good thing to create policy based off of myths and the, the unfortunate reality is, is that a large majority of people don't understand how um, these large aggregators make money and the way in which the dynamics of, of who benefits who actually stacks. A lot of people think that Facebook, Instagram, even Google search for that for to a lesser extent in YouTube are all benefit. Those those businesses are benefiting from news organizations. And it's the complete and utter opposite. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be an ongoing. I, I, I'm a, for our listeners. I think this is something that's definitely worth this is continuing a huge, to follow. Huge thing, I think. Unfortunately, you're going to have to go to CTV and CBC and <laughs> yeah. and the Globe and Mail and whatever else to to continue to follow it. Which I would I would say do that because I think it's a it's an interesting thing to stay on top of and and form an opinion on and how you feel about it. So 100. percent So Cam. For those that are moving to Canada, and yeah, this was an this kind of came out I guess a couple of weeks ago. I think it was when it was first announced. This H one B visa holder in the U S. and the the immigration to Canada option. So I, I'm going to give a really good Coles notes here, or really short Coles notes, and you can fill in the edges if you'd like. But yep. essentially, 
H-1B visa holders, which would be a very specific or a, a specific subset of, of visa holders in the U.S. Um, from a working visa standpoint, were offered a essentially a, a free pass, if you want to call it that way, into Canada. Um, up to 10,000 people were accepted. And these were specific to the tech industry, mm-hmm. is my understanding, in, in Canada. And um, essentially that they can come over and work in Canada. for So those who are on... Ex- not it's actually expiring visas, but on visas that that people maybe aren't don't have jobs currently, et cetera, in the U.S. are able to come to Canada and seek employment. And obviously, this is a big benefit for tech companies in Canada as well. They would have kind of a direct line to this list, call it, mm-hmm. and be able to search for new talent. And so the it was capped at ten thousand as it currently stands, and within forty eight hours, all ten thousand spots were filled. And so I think it's. Obviously, I think maybe I'll let you talk about some of the positives and takeaways from that. I think the most important thing over the next three years with this program and whether or not it expands to more different industries, et cetera, I know there's there's various various kind of visa work programs that we have in Canada for kind of a partnership between us and the U.S. or kind of using U.S. vetting to kind of help with with expediting on the Canadian side is whether or not they are able to retain those people past those three years. Mm-hmm. So I think attracting talent right now, it, this is a really quote unquote easy way of having, I guess, a vetting process already have been completed over it or get those folks over into Canada working for companies, hopefully a part of a, of a growth scheme here in Canada and in, in the tech industry specifically. What are those companies? What are we going to do as a country to make sure we're retaining those people? And, and keeping them here past the three years. Because I get anyone offers me a quote unquote, it's either the option is go to Canada or go home, mm-hmm. like overseas, wherever that might be. I'm taking probably go to Canada in most cases. Probably. And you're, I mean, like very competitive wages, I would assume. And I mean, affordability, depending on where you're at right now in Canada, could be could be better than what you're coming from in the U.S. in certain areas. But again, (laughs) fast forwarding three years, are we able to retain that talent at the end of the day? I think that was from some of the articles I read. I think that's kind of the biggest question. Obviously, very positive in terms of the the program itself. And obviously, the fact that it was 10,000 people in less than 48 hours to fill it is is really awesome and a very positive thing to see. But it's whether or not, okay, we're going to have these folks for, for three years. What are we doing to sell them on Canada and to continue to grow in Canada? And, you know, these, these 10,000 employees, how many of those employees turn into entrepreneurs that are going to start new businesses that are going to expedite this and grow and grow and grow, right? So that's what is the key. I think getting them in the door is through this program is an, is awesome and a really good idea and I'm, I'm assuming that'll be this will be just the start of this but we don't want to be a feeder league for the united states exactly you right? don't want to it, it's it's almost like you don't yeah you don't the cfl when your top talent like for for a sports reference uh, you get a canadian football league star and you grow them and they become a star after five years and then you from the league's perspective you're like oh i want to market this person they're yeah. huge in edmonton and then but by they're on the practice squad in oakland <laughs> making more money and yeah they're gone forever and that is the crux of canada in, in many ways i think that we are going to have a problem how do we pay competitively have competitive affordable living have tax rates in the 50s in many provinces and still compete with the United States. That's where I think all the politics is going right now. It is going back to what it used to be, which is taxes and housing and affordable housing. And that's, I'm a huge, huge believer in, in immigration. I think it is the literally the number one um, competitive advantage we have in Canada. Mm-hmm. We do a phenomenal job. Not only that's pretty nice here. Now, with all that said, we also are incrementally increasing rates or rates, but um, uh, tax rates. And that is going to be a problem. We need to be competitive with the United States. If you look at the top tax brackets, if you look at even the, our corporate tax rates versus the United States and, and what it's like to operate a large um, company here, mm-hmm. we need to be competitive with California, New York, with Florida, with Texas, with so you can take California off now. No one wants to move there anymore. Yeah. So. Okay. Fair enough. They still have positive immigration, but 
I, I, I get it. That's for the surfing folk. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, Denver, whatever, right? So you have all of these pretty, like, objectively nice places that have considerably lower tax rates on the corporate and the personal side. Alberta's the only one that's even relatively close. And then we have this, this great feeder program with incredibly talented people from the rest of the world coming to our, our diverse culture. And I think we're very inclusive. I think we do a really nice job educating people. But how do we keep them, right? We don't have housing that's generally affordable unless you're in Edmonton or Calgary. Yeah, and we- you, but you have a, a, this great way of getting people to come here. And I, I think that it's something that needs to be solved. And it's likely policy that requires this. And I don't know what that looks like. Um, the United States just got credit downgraded from triple A to double A. Down, now they're now they're they're like us peasants in Canada. <laughs> um, we have a, a we're in a position where our financial situation is very similar to theirs. Uh, we've been able to raise interest rates. Um, inflation has come back down in line. What does policy look like moving forward? This is a big opportunity, I think, for everyone in politics. And right now, it is in flux. So mm-hmm. I don't know what our, and that's from a federal perspective. I'm not commenting yeah. provincially here. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious because there are, we're really benefiting from it right now. And our, our distribution of age is, has, our, the demographics of Canada has really improved the last five years. And I, I give all the credit in the world to the liberal government for this. How do we keep them? How do we house them? How do we have them have more children? How do we incentivize all these things? while also not driving away our ultra-talented entrepreneurial people, which mm-hmm. is happening. They are moving to America. So yeah, there, there, there was, I think, from talking to a few folks anyways in kind of the capital Edmonton region here in terms of we, we, we're very lucky and to have a university here and two universities that are, that are doing really well, but U of A specifically in relation to developing tech talent. And I think there has been a shift a little bit in this province anyways from the kind of decision-making on graduate, let's say software engineer, quote unquote, and getting an offer in the States versus staying here and working for a local company, mm-hmm. starting your own. I think the gap has, has narrowed. I think with the shift in, well, we've seen, we've talked about the number of headlines out of the, like in terms of people being laid off in the States and in, in the tech industry. And so the opportunities are not as grand as they were the contact I'm talking about is kind of using six to eight years ago as a comparison point. So I think they're, we're at an influx, right? We're at a very pivotal point, I think, as, and I think that's what you just said, to say we have the ability to retain through certain programs and potentially in certain areas of this country more affordable living and opportunity from a wage perspective. How do we keep them? How do we keep developing it? And that's, as you point out, it's going to be shaped by policy. I think we do need to maybe do, we, we keep we keep talking about the housing issues. I, I did have a couple articles. I think we're going to skip over them this week. Maybe we do a, big, a bigger deep dive in an episode coming up on the housing market after. I, I think, think we should, I should just, let's do a brief thing here. Let's talk a little bit about it. Well, as I say, June and July, uh, July July numbers aren't you know completely out yet. We're on August third here, so maybe some more information to come. But I think looking at we we keep talking inventory appears to be the number one issue yeah. in North America in general. I think that's mirrored in the states as well. In terms of we keep talking about all of the interest rates going up, putting pressure on on buyers and the ability to qualify uh, as a buyer. And as well as existing wallet spend for people who are on variable mortgages, et cetera. That is one side of the pressure. But then the other side is immigration is up. Inventory is very low in mm-hmm. terms of new builds. And then obviously you have people who are sellers on the sideline. You've talked about the word or the kind of sentiment around anchoring, anchoring to an old price that you thought your house was worth. And maybe it's not quite there in, again in certain markets. Toronto maybe specifically right now I don't want to sell right now I can afford what I'm currently paying I'm going to wait it out because I think that my house is worth x and I'm not going to sell for y Mm -hmm. anymore so you kind of have these counteracting issues but I think from reading and talking or talking to on this podcast and then reading from experts in this country 
specifically, I think inventory appears to be the biggest issue totally. as it currently stands. And that, again, inventory can be made up of brand new builds, existing home sales, etc. I've seen statistics to say that the ramp up on new build inventory for multiplexes and residential homes has been on the rise in this country. And that's what I maybe want to dive into a bit more specifically into the future. But at the end of the day, inventory appears to be the biggest issue in our major centers. Yeah. And that's what needs to be, especially when we're talking about doing a lot of good things from strategic immigration to get skilled workers here, people who are the new entrepreneurial wave in this country in addition to people who are homegrown how do you keep them if they have nowhere to if if they're in a market where they don't feel like it is affordable or what their what their dream is of of building their business and building their life here in canada isn't available to them yeah i you know what i i want to do next episode that we do on this i'm going to bring in the mortgage broker that i used he he, he could talk about this a little bit we'll do a three person pod Mm. and we can ask him some questions and then i will then act like an expert and not know anything and do my thing yeah and i think it could be a decent show um but in the interest of of staying on topic here the this topic that prof g or professor galloway scott galloway has been Mm. kind of pounding the table on he's been talking about this for like a year and a half you know what's interesting is that I've been reading his stuff for, I don't know, five or six years now. And mm. a lot of my friends have now started reading his books. I give the, his, uh, the algebra of happiness yes. out to a lot of people. Blaine just read it mm-hmm. and said he loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is a super important topic for men to start to think about. And even us as uh, boy dads, I gotta be thinking about this too, as we raise our children, you know? Um, and. So this post from him is the changing shape of, of young men's days and uh, the average daily hours devoted to select activities for men ages 15 to 24. Mm-hmm. And from 2003 to 2019, you've seen a pretty significant change in things here. Yeah. So he says among men ages 15 to 24 who spend at least some time playing games on average on an average day in 2022, the average time spent was 3.82 hours. So that's when we say games there, it's video games. Right. So young men in the U.S. are spending more time on video games and TV and less time working, exercising, and sleeping. So, yeah, I, I mean, we're a part, I remember being that age and spending more time on, on those things. Obviously, this post, if you want to look at it, I think this was on Instagram, I believe, that you pulled it from in terms of the, the graphic. Mm-hmm. And the comparative period is not very long ago. Like, this is obviously pre-pandemic. Yeah. So I think some of that might be skewed by the fact that, hey, lots of people didn't have anything else to do mm-hmm. uh, for, call it, 18 to 24 months of the, that period. Everyone was, was locked inside for the most part, or at least on an ad hoc basis. But I think some of the, the biggest shifts or the that are concerning to me is like the, the sleeping, the, the educational activities and the sports exercise and recreation, which I mean, is it harder to do the sleeping? Take it aside is the, was the educational and the sports exercise recreation harder to maintain during our, our, the pandemic period? Yes, but you can find ways to do things by yourself for, in your house and and continue to to spend time doing those things but what was easier to do it's easier to sit on your couch and of course and hang out right so it is concerning and i think it's obviously incumbent on you know those people's those young men's father figures mothers family close close friends whatever it might be to think about like having balance in your life from that standpoint and i think this we talked about productivity <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. I think this graph is just kind of enforces that even more when you are spending more time on playing games, entertainment. Which we talk a ton on this podcast about how the amazing ways to be entertained. Oh yeah, there's no shortage, right? And you should never be bored. So there's the, <laughs> and the access to that is. I mean, all you need is your phone and internet and a Wi-Fi connection. You can have that wherever you are, whether you're you're working in 
the middle of nowhere or if you're at your office, whatever it is, it's very easy to consume content yeah. and even, you know, play games on your break or whatever it might be. It needs to be a conscious effort that you have to make to say, like, I don't know, you <laughs> something as simple as using the limits on your phone oh, yeah. for apps and stuff like that. I mean, like, I always ignore that stuff and just move on and be like, I need to see this golf video. Yeah, this is one of those but, things where I don't have a problem. Everyone else has a problem. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which is yeah. not in my case. I have a problem, and I know it. Yeah. But that, with that said, um, Adam Grant, who is... Uh, <sighs> Let me read his title. He's an organizational psychologist from Wharton. Yeah, we've um, talked to him on a few times in the yeah, podcast before. He wrote yeah. a New York Times bestseller, Think Again. And then he has Thinking in Work Life as, as, a, as his podcast. I'm, I don't know, I, I, I tend to like a lot of his tweets. But he had one that, it, this is more of a comment. And he said, when kids are deprived of play, their mental health suffers. Over the past 50 years, the time kids spend playing outside and inside has plummeted. They're missing opportunities to bond, build, uh, build self-control, be creative, and feel joy. Uh, free play is key to happiness and growth. And then he has this this um, long piece that I, I'll quote. Yeah, this it's from the, the Journal of Pediatrics in the U.S. Yeah. yeah, so not this guy's obviously a very accomplished man. He knows what he's talking about. And it's just an interesting um, change in just our, I've said social fabric multiple times today. Mm-hmm. It is a change, big change. And it shifted quickly. We we humans do not adapt well to fast changing um, environments. And right now we are in it. I, I had this really long conversation with someone that I really respect recently about the, um, the difficulties of dealing with misinformation, uh, with, with the way in which we consume information. Like you and I have been really good friends for a long period of time, but we have maybe 1% overlap in, in our days in terms of from the time we met at 15 to, to now. Right. And, not even 1%, 0.1%, and we're close. And we are now assuming that we're going to, with, with all of this content distribution, no water cooler conversations don't happen anymore. There's no, this is the topic of the day. And because everybody's consuming different things, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that has now changed us to the point in which we are unable to deal with um, the differences of opinion because they have now fractured so much. So now with, with children, and how we raise them and the way in which they're spending their time, I think we really need to, as parents, figure out why was it working for the last 40,000 years, or let's just say the last 200 years of mm-hmm. civilized Western society. And over the last 20 years, it has changed a lot. How do we, how do we marry the two? Mm-hmm. How do we like, keep and grow healthy children during a time in which we have a massive change in and differing of opinions and um, a weird media landscape and even an entertainment landscape, technology landscape. How do we marry all these things? And um, I really enjoy the, the conversations that Prof G has on his podcast with a number of these, I don't know, pretty accomplished. Like psychologists. Psychologists. Yep. Yep. I don't know the right answer. No, but I, I, I think but. it's something, again, and this isn't a popular answer, and again, I know we're in, in an opinion business for the most part, but I think taking a balanced approach to these things is the, is the important thing and taking a step back and understanding there needs to be some kind of balance between, I mean, this, this journal of pediatrics is more specific to younger children, uh, specifically under the age of 18, but it goes into talking about, you know, even from the age of 5 to 12 and how they're spending their time. Uh, Our discussion earlier was on young men. This is obviously just children in general. And it mostly, the the excerpt, it's a much bigger journal piece, I'm sure, outside of what was shared by Adam just in his tweet. But the, the level of kind of like unsupervised like they call it free time mm-hmm. that was spent by kids. And I mean, we're going to go, we're going to give boomers their credit here in the 60s and 70s you left your house at three o'clock and you could do whatever until dinner time when the bell was rung or whatever and that was that there was no supervision there was no there was more responsibility heaped on children at a younger age whereas now it's again based off of either opinions that have been pressed on to you impressed upon people to say there needs to be more supervision more um Mm handholding at certain levels of 
And I'm not saying like, I'm going to send my five-year-old to walk to school by himself or take the bus or whatever. I get, that's not really, I'm not saying that's, that's just one example of that they gave in this commentary to say, you know, people were walking to school at five years old and they were given that responsibility and it was expected that they would be able to handle it Mm -hmm. at an earlier age. Whereas now that's like the age in which that responsibility is heaped on somebody has continued to get older and older. And even like at 11, 12 years old, you're doing a paper route or you have a part-time job doing babysitting or whatever it might be. There has been a, a stretch out of that in terms of giving that kind of responsibility to kids at an earlier age. And if you wait to give that responsibility longer and longer as they get older, as this piece says, is that that creates more anxiety and they don't feel comfortable in that situation as they become more aware and more developed because they haven't been given that type of, again, (coughs) responsibility or, or job previously. Mm -hmm. And, and it even just talks about obviously giving kids the opportunity to, like less screen time, more yeah, yeah. free play, exercise, random, just being together with other kids at their age. And so we've obviously gone through a very, very tough time for call it the pandemic generation of kids that have grown up during, like there was a lot of restrictions if we were following them put on that age group. Yeah. But again, if, I think it just comes back to our, our, our kids, do we need to mimic what the 1960s or 1970s kids experience was? No, we do not because that's not, relevant anymore there's a lot of things that we need to be doing differently and exposing them to at an earlier age or whatever it might be but there are aspects of social development as they kind of outline in this in this journal piece and i'm and what you know prof galloway has talked about on many of his podcasts it's it's how do you take the good again from the past and make sure that there is still that balance in the development of you know young children and into adolescence and and young adults and giving them a the the tools to be able to have the the social dynamic along with kind of the the tech piece if you want to call it so definitely a challenging time for parents like us and many of the listeners i'm sure trying to navigate all of this but yeah. again it's i think it's trying to find that that balanced approach as, as much as you can yeah 100 percent. so let's move on to recommendations for the week mm-hmm. i have a lot of reading to do on lk99 and superconductors Someone who clearly doesn't have much science background, this is not an area of expertise for me. <laughs> However, there has been a lot of drama. You know that they're important. <laughs> well, the sad thing is, is that the, the, when stock prices move, four, five, six, seven hundred 700% because of a new breakthrough in tech, I have to know. So LK99 over the last, I don't know, call it two weeks, has had a number of breakthroughs. Some of them are proving to be fairly... Uh, let's call it just fake news. Um, but there's some interesting um, information there. It's just, it's interesting to, to learn even how important a superconductor is. So now next week I intend on having a better opinion, better understanding here. But um, when, when I, what I want people to understand about it, and this is how I'm thinking about it. It's like, think if you remember um, Avatar, uh, there is this thing called unobtonium, and it, it's multipolar, so it's it's not attracted to negative or positive, so it, it floats. Um, this is this incredible superconductor um, metal that is only found on Pandora. Uh, that is what effectively this LK99 was thought to be, and uh, we'll see where it ends up being, but to be sure, it is an important breakthrough if it works out doesn't seem to be the truth but nonetheless this is where um, semiconductors superconductors this is where we're, we're headed never bet against technology because if you do you just end up looking stupid the progress of 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 humanity is ever interesting the whether it be the the news around um, uh, nuclear fission and what happened earlier this year and then you have stuff like this and then we, we, we look at the, the, the climate arguments. I just think we're going to be able to solve all of our, the worldly problems because we're just, everyone on earth is working towards them. 
because that's the way we're incentivized. So I'm optimistic forever. Plus half full Joel. I don't know. That's Ever, me. Everyone take a note and remember this day. Yeah, so I'm going to be posting a bunch of that stuff, what I'm reading. I'll throw that in the newsletter. That's my recommendation for the week since there's nothing else to do. I got an oldie but goodie. So further, this is a sports podcast. So the, the old man and the three, which I've talked about before and mm. recommended before. So J.J. Redick, probably ex-NBA player, has been kind of doing a media thing since the 2020 year essentially like a year before his retirement does this great podcast with tommy alter um they have been able i think because of his relationships in the game he's had so many players who would probably not normally be given interviews come on his podcast and so they're in their break period in august but they've reposted they're reposting some of their best interviews from the year and they're having Damian Lillard on, which is, ah. he's in the news a lot right now because he's got his trade demand, right? But anyways, he's a very interesting and thoughtful player. And so they just reposted his recently. So again, if you, it'd be at the top of your list if you go to that podcast on whatever platform. And so I was listening to it over the last two days and it's just very interesting to hear people. It doesn't matter what industry it is, but then my interest obviously in sports to kind of break down very granular things in their game or their mindset mm -hmm. and and speak to that and so i think it's a great interview because he he goes down as granular as how he like how you learn to shoot differently and why he's so so him um specifically is one of the few players who can pull up from 35 feet and be accurate 50. still or whatever it might be <laughs> yeah. so he he kind of goes into that and then again his his mindset going into games and how he feels as a leader on his team and and what he thinks he needs to do and how he even how he starts games versus ends games all that kind of stuff and so i i think it's a it was really interesting just to hear that so obviously from the how player going to do that in toronto yeah, definitely not miami or bus baby <laughs> so south beach for him but it's the podcast in general, I have recommended it before, again, for people who are maybe interested in basketball or enthusiasts or getting into the game, does a very good job of kind of weighing out kind of news and then granular information and also breaking it down, like what certain things mm -hmm. mean. So it's actually helped me understand the game a lot more and, and why certain things are done. And then also, obviously, like I said, the access to the players is pretty amazing. The fact that he's kind of getting all these people on that would not normally go into kind of long form interview styles with call it regular media. Mm -hmm. So it it's, it's interesting to see he would be one example of there's been, you know, many of these ex sports players and figures who have transitioned into the media side of things very well. And they've been able to access because there's that comfort level with not being in a big studio or in your kind of traditional media sense having a more relaxed atmosphere and having someone that you've that you have automatic trust with mm -hmm. and so the the ability to kind of open up pandora's box and get in some of these guys heads is really interesting i've decided that i'm going to be pushing basketball on my young son and i'm getting a wide well, membership gonna be a i'm going to be playing gonna be like, this winter he's gonna be like dad he's gonna be a tall kid so hopefully hey. like for that like six three if he can learn to shoot like dame yeah point guard we hey. got this and we know the money so please <laughs> yeah. please work out and remember please, please, remember please. uncle cam yes, along the way that's right yeah. <laughs> all right cam see you next week yes sir wednesday let's do it